This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi there, this is Kevin Lindsay. Welcome to Systems and Cybernetics. Along with my friend Tom Schultz, I had the great privilege of hosting this podcast here on the New Books Network. Today, I'm thrilled to be in conversation with Jeremy Lent about his new book, The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe, published by New Society Publishers. The Web of Meaning challenges the dominant worldview, inviting readers, humans, to discover our potential to follow a path of integration that could lead to symbiotic flourishing for humanity and Gaia together. Lent argues that modern science and traditional wisdom taught to us through ancient Eastern and indigenous traditions are not incompatible and suggests that systems thinking is perhaps the means through which we can create a bridge between worldviews seemingly at odds with each other. At least that was my take, the systems nerd that, that I am. The Web of Meaning offers a compelling foundation for the new story that could enable humanity to thrive sustainably on a flourishing earth. It's a book for everyone looking for deep and coherent answers to the crises of civilization. So, Jeremy, I'm just going to talk about you for a second, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Jeremy Lent is an author and speaker whose work investigates the underlying causes of our civilization's existential crises and explores pathways toward a life-affirming future. His previous and award-winning book, The Patterning Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning, examines the ways humans have made meaning from the cosmos, from hunter-gatherer times to the present day. Born in London, England, Lent received a BA in English Literature from Cambridge University an MBA from the University of Chicago. A former internet company CEO, he is a founder of the nonprofit, is the founder of the nonprofit Leology Institute, dedicated to fostering an integrated worldview in support of a flourishing future on a regenerated earth. Jeremy lives with his partner across the bay from me in Berkeley, California. Jeremy, a warm welcome to the New Books Network. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. So looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. Me me too. I am very excited. And as, as I said to you previously, before we hit the record button, it's going to be really challenging to contain this conversation in a in a short 50-minute podcast, but we'll we'll do our best. And then the point is really to get people to buy that book and uh, and and read it um, and experience it. So I want to congratulate you on the book and and for joining me today. I know you've been really busy since the launch. Um, just tell me what's the response been like so far. Oh yeah, it's been an interesting response. Um, and in general, uh, people who have um, you know got into the book have been loving it. And what I've found is that people who are already kind of attuned to one part of what the book talks about are the ones who just come alive the most because they they sort of already get it um, to some degree. But then I think what the book does for people is it opens up this realization that what they sensed about their particular area they knew is, uh, expands to all aspects of life. And that's what I think gets people so excited. I've been, to, to be honest, I've been, was hoping 
to get the book noticed a little bit more by the mainstream. Because part of what I want to do with the book is open up a different way of thinking for people who aren't necessarily aware of that at all. Um, and I think that's going to take a little bit longer because people, I think, who are not in that way of thinking, just don't, it takes a while for them to get it, what it is that it's even talking about. Yeah. And um, I love that you say that. I, I think the mainstream is just so ready for this book mm -hmm. and, and, and needing it. So um, I'll do my best. <laughs> so, um, so normally we start these conversations by asking authors how they got into systems thinking. And um, I think for you, the question is a little bit different. You know, I, I read the book and we're going to talk quite a bit about systems thinking. But for me, it felt like uh, you didn't go seeking systems thinking mm -hmm. um, that instead you've you've arrived at a, at a place through the work that you've done and the experiences that, that you've had. Um, and and certainly systems thinking is is a part of of the worldview that that you formed and, and that you talk about in the book. So maybe just tell us a little bit about your story and, and kind of how yeah. you, you got to kind of thinking this way and bringing this message. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yes. And, um, and you're right. I didn't start this process by seeking systems thinking at all. In fact, I didn't even know what it was. And um, I, what this process was for me was really what I was seeking was meaning, was a sense of meaning in my own life and a sense of trying to understand where meaning came from. Uh, and this whole process really started for me kind of in the middle of my life. I'd built um, a successful career uh, at starting an internet company, actually taking it public. Um, and then things crashed around, really my whole sort of life, if you will, crashed around me. Um, some years back now, about 15 or so years ago, my uh, wife at the time, she passed away some years back. She got sick. I left the company to look after her. Too soon. It was, it was the dot com era. The company had just uh, gone public, um, and over a short period of time, the company collapsed. Um, my wife uh, actually started to uh, suffer from sort of borderline dementia a little bit, cognitive decline. So I kind of lost that relationship, even though I spent years looking after her. And it's like everything that I built around me was crashing, and I was determined that. Whatever I did in my life was going to be truly meaningful, but that led to this question, where does meaning come from? I didn't want to take somebody else's words for it. So I started this process that went on for years of kind of peeling the onion of the concepts that we take for granted, like whatever it is, like God or soul or meaning itself. And it took me into things like anthropology, cognitive science. And um, traditional ideas, because I was looking all the way back in earliest times, and it also took me to systems thinking. But what was kind of funny about my actual introduction to systems thinking is it was through Fritjof Capra's work. And I'd read the Tao of Physics early on because that was famous, and so I kind of knew about it. And then I went deeper into his work, and I was coming across a chapter in one of his books, I think, The Web of Life. And it's, it was the chapter was called Systems Thinking. And honestly, I thought, oh, well, this looks kind of boring. Um, what a boring kind of concept. Maybe I'll skip this chapter. But then I thought, well, let me just kind of read it. And it opened up a whole new way of conceiving the world that was so profoundly meaningful to me. So I sometimes think that systems thinking itself is a bit of a marketing problem in that uh, the word itself doesn't exactly excite people as much as the idea, the actual recognition, the reality of it is so mind-blowing. 
Well, and I think that you do quite a bit to actually put some excitement into systems thinking in this book. Um, so I, I really appreciated that. Um, thanks for sharing that. So early on in the book, and even in the, the introduction that that um, that I provided, um, worldview is a is a big word, and there were a few things that captured my attention early on. Um, you say every one of the building blocks is is flawed. And, uh, and that we, you know, we really need that integrated worldview. And uh, just kind of reading on a little bit later in the book, there's the, the quote that you, that you make um, about Aristotle. And you say, um, if Aristotle could have explained his ideas to other indigenous cultures around the world, it's likely they would have been receptive. And it kind of makes me think, wow, is it, you know, is that when we kind of took the wrong exit and, and things started to kind of build in, in kind of a weird way in, in kind of the so-called Western world? Mm. Yeah, well, I think um, that is in uh, to a large degree. Um, and in fact, I explored this in some detail in my earlier book, The Patterning Instinct, which actually looks specifically at the different ways in which earlier cultures have made sense of the universe all the way from hunter-gatherer times to the present. And in some ways, I do see the web of meaning. It's interesting you talk about that line because I see it in some ways as trying to almost create this web as if um, as if I'm sort of trying to facilitate a conversation mm-hmm. um, between over millennia and between different cultures and try to find where's the common ground, where are the fundamental differences, what can we learn, what can we gain in our modern era if we approach it from this Chinese version and this um, ancient Greek thought and what do we put together. So um, yeah, it was an interesting concept. But I do think that the ancient Greeks uh, represented a moment in cultural history that did step us uh, significantly away from systems thinking, which really I think is Mm -hmm. there in indigenous cultures everywhere. There's a sense of the deep interconnectivity of all life, of everything. Um, And that distinction between Aristotle and Plato is that Aristotle, I think, was one of the greatest systems thinkers the world has ever seen. And um, Plato, the opposite. Plato was about looking at uh, different dimensions of being and um, separate, like looking at places of separation. But right. really, for a few hundred years, actually, in the ancient Greek time, Aristotle's way of thinking in Stoicism and areas like that was probably more dominant. It was really with uh, the rise of Christianity that that dualistic worldview that Plato put out really became embedded in the Western mind ever since. Um, so let's go way, way, way back. I, um, I, I noticed there's a, um, uh, Tyson Yacoporta uh, writes one of the reviews on the, on the book's jacket. And I had an opportunity to talk to him in uh, one of the episodes. And, and I kind of came away from that. And I said, you know, you're, you're really talking about the original systems thinkers here. And um, so, you know, in reading, reading this book as, as well, it's, it sort of feels like, well, Everybody but the West. Every <laughs> they were, you know, all indigenous cultures and and some of the the early cultures were were really thinking and and looking as as you put it, you know, in terms of understanding the complex relationship between humanity and the natural world. So talk a little bit about the the early Taoists and and what you explore in the book. Yes, and in fact, the book actually begins with the uh, Taoists um, because I think they posed some fundamental questions and um and they had a deep understanding of how to how life is and how humans relate to the rest of the non-human world 
that I think have been validated and um, recognized now in modern systems thinking, but they bring a lot of wisdom. It's not just a gee whiz, how interesting, because they, they bring some really deep understandings themselves to the issues. And I think what the, the Taoist in a way were almost like a continuation of indigenous thought. Uh, they didn't, there wasn't this break in Chinese culture between early indigenous ideas and, um, and what developed. So the Chinese themselves developed this incredibly sophisticated, complex understanding of all of life as this interrelated web. But what, what the Taoists saw in particular was there was this split between humanity and the rest of life. And they uh, define the split in terms of this difference between what they call Wu Wei, which basically means like effortless action, going with the flow of life, which they saw all, um, all natural beings do, and everything from a tree to a, a bird to an animal. And then what they called Yu Wei, which can loosely be uh, translated as purposive action. And they said humans got into this Yu Wei way of thinking. And that's what gave us, that was like essentially their theory of civilization. That's what gave us um, artifacts and language. And then in, in the words of their great scholar, Zhuangzi, um, he said, you know, that's like the, the great crime of humanity. Uh, the great crime of the carpenters was to take this piece of wood and cut it into something particular that they wanted to do, which is funny that they'd, he'd think about it as a crime. Because you might look and say, well, isn't that what civilization is? That's what we do as humans. And the Taoists would say, exactly. That's what has taken us away from the Tao, away from Wu Wei. And to me, that is a, a crucial question. What is it that makes us as humans different from the rest of life? Um, and it's what I explore in detail in, in the book, really, uh, sort mm -hmm. of from that core question. Is that is that what you also refer to as the animate consciousness or animate intelligence? Yes, exactly. I think um, again, if you look now at what modern neuroscience uh, or leading cognitive neuroscientists show us, they've essentially put uh, scientific terms around those Taoist concepts of Wu Wei and Yu Wei. And some of the, I think the greatest thinkers in cognitive science, in cognitive neuroscience in recent decades, people like Antonio Damasio and Gerald Edelman, they talk about two different forms of consciousness. Uh, they might call it primary or secondary consciousness. Or, um, and I feel the term that made the most sense to me is animate, consciousness, which is more like wu-wei thinking, essentially mm -hmm. the consciousness that all creatures have, and then conceptual consciousness, because it's that conceptual way of thinking mediated by our prefrontal cortex that actually does seem to make humans distinct from other, uh, other creatures. Got it. So, you know, this this split and, you know, you go into a lot of um, discussion around uh, Descartes uh, and the more mechanistic kind of direction that, that, that we, that we took. And, and I, and I, I think it sort of raises that, well, how's that working out for us? Like, you know, <laughs> this machine, this machine metaphor um, was sort of uh, dominant. And what, what do you think the, you know, the implications of that, have been as we sort of think about yeah. you know, where we're at today. Yeah, really. And, um, and 
really Descartes was one of the leading thinkers there, but we can really see in that period of the scientific revolution, everyone from like Galileo to Newton to Descartes, um, Francis Bacon, and they were all really exploring a new metaphor of nature, if you will, a new way of cons- of understanding nature as this machine, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think the implications are twofold. It's important to emphasize that um, I don't view that as like a wrong turn or a bad thing that developed. In fact, right. in many ways, it's one of the greatest achievements in the whole human project since- And I think you make that very clear, for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Like, you know, the um, th- they developed the scientific revolution, the ability to understand nature by breaking it apart and understanding its different pieces, which is why we can talk right now over the internet and why we have these great things like an understanding of, say, like the germ theory of disease and hygiene and electricity and so many things we can be grateful for. But at the same time, it I think that way of thinking was so successful that people began to think that is the only way to make sense of the universe. And that's where Mm -hmm. um, sort of scientific reductionism, which is this approach of cutting things apart to understand them, made this leap into what I I refer to as ontological reductionism, which is Mm -hmm. basically this kind of leap of faith where people say, because we understand so much by breaking things apart, it must be that the whole universe can be Mm -hmm. understood only by looking at the different parts of it. And in fact, any attempt to understand it by looking holistically must be wrong. So this is a leap of faith, really a little bit like the leap of faith of a religious person saying there must be a God because that's, you know, he created the universe. It must be like that. Right, right. The, and that way of thinking has led to this imbalance where now we see the earth as a machine where people actually, they're stuck in this dualistic mindset where people like Raymond Kurzweil here in the Bay Area mm-hmm. writes books about how um, the singularity will come and he hopes he'll be able to upload his consciousness to the, um, the sort of cloud, if you will, um, which is fundamentally, even if it's impractical, it's actually in principle, it's incorrect. It's based on this flawed notion of reality as though consciousness human consciousness could be separated from our embodied experience. And then you get things like geoengineering, where as people look at the climate breakdown that humans have caused, rather than saying, how do we look at the deep system, the systemic issues arising? They say, oh, well, how do we, if if it's like a machine that's going wrong, so let's fix it. Let's just engineer this trillions of things out in the, uh, out of the atmosphere to reflect the sun's rays, et cetera. Yeah. Oh, you know, and I, I love this part of the conversation. Um, you use the term um, internal signaling, I, I noticed. And then I, um, a few pages later, came across your quote from psychologist William James, um, where he talks about consciousness is an organ added for the sake of steering a nervous system too complex to regulate itself. And it just really made mm. me think a number of times throughout the book, you, you say, these damn computers, like they're no way as complex as this insect or this right. leaf or so it, it just sort of feels like, oh, wow, are, are we are we at this point where, you know, the what we've got here our this Earth system, humanity, our relationship with 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 the rest of of the natural world is way too complex for us to 
you know, engineer ourselves out of any kind of mess and, right. and all those unanticipated kinds of things in, in these complex systems that, again, we didn't anticipate and technology isn't built to tackle. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And um, yeah, and you're right. That is a theme in the book that really, in a way, we humans have developed a terrible hubris. And that hubris um, could also be uh, given the term of uh, human supremacy, mm-hmm. uh, which is this notion that uh, we as, we're not just separate from nature, but we're better than the rest of nature. We're smarter. Um, our computers are better. And nature doesn't have any intrinsic value or meaning at all. It's just there as a resource for humans to develop what make, you know, our sort of essentially our divinity, if you will, uh, to take a sort of old fashioned concept, but that's really what is, uh, what is there in human supremacy. And yeah, so part of what the book really tries to do, and this is really my own journey because I only came to this place over a number of years is to realize that actually to the extent that there's divinity in anything, it's in, it's in life itself. Mm-hmm. And that once we get to recognize the incredible, just the amazing intelligence of that animate intelligence, how a single cell, like you say, um, has actually greater intelligence than even our most advanced supercomputer. Um, Once we kind of get to realize that, and we've got 40 trillion of these cells within each of us, um, and we're part of this unfolding of life over billions of years, it reorients our place, our way of thinking about life, which really comes to that subtitle of the book, like integrating science and traditional wisdom to find our place in the universe. And that really our place in the universe, when we see it as being part of life unfolding, it shifts every element in how we think about how we relate to the rest of life, how we should be acting. Yeah. I, again, we could, we could talk a lot about this. Um, There are uh, a couple of other things I think very much related um, uh, to to this concept. It just that struck me, and and you know one of them is um, this idea of this resistance maybe that we have. Um, you, you know, you you mentioned you say something like no wonder reductionist scientists hate systems theory. <laughs> like it, you know, we're 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 saying you know. Think about the observer and the observed di- differently. Like they, you know, this isn't about subjectivity and how we how we study, but instead being part of and not separate from um, these 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 systems. That seems to be a big theme that that you also explore. I think I think that's right. And along with that comes this notion of control, because mm-hmm. it really, in a way, when we go back to that scientific revolution and the thought process that we've inherited from that. And it had a lot to do with control. There were these statements that Francis Bacon would make, these clarion calls, like um, we can um, sort of conquer nature. We can like, um, it was almost like this, uh, there was this weird kind of slightly pathological patriarchal quality because they would talk about nature as a she and we've got to torture her secrets out of her and all this kind mm. of stuff. But it was a lot to do with control. And reductionism essentially is about control, like break down the little parts and then manipulate them back and create what you want for your own benefit. And what systems thinking tells us ultimately is that we are not separate from the parts that we're analyzing and we don't ultimately have control over them. Now, And that doesn't mean, well, just give up and just 
to some sort of Taoist way of just follow the flow and don't even try to enhance civilization. But what it means is that look about how we can skillfully influence these complex systems rather than believe we can control everything about them, which brings a level of humility uh, mm-hmm. that's needed badly, I think, in terms of how we approach our world today. Yeah, it, it feels like there's a, th- there's a resistance and I don't know what it is that we're hanging on to. Maybe it's that control and, and it's the arrogance or something along those lines. Um, I loved, you know, it was really useful to hear you um, describe kind of what happened with uh, Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, and then there was this new, you know, neo-Confucianism that kind of was a synthesis and kind of started to look at at patterns. Um, and of course, patterns are, are so important in, in, in systems thinking and feels like it's really critical to like what we kind of need to, to do here. Um, can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, sure, definitely. And this was actually one of the most important moments of my own research. It spanned you know, 10, to 12, 10 to 15 years or so, um, when actually by um, good, uh, by fortunate coincidence, I was actually reading um, this. There's this great uh, historian of Chinese uh, science and civilization called Joseph Needham, the 20th century writer who wrote these multiple books about understanding how Chinese thought uh, was occurring. And he was describing uh, what these Neo Confucians about a thousand years ago in Song Dynasty China uh, came up with was this concept of qi and li. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting is that they were actually integrating three different traditions in China, Buddhism, like you say, Taoism, and Confucianism. And they were actually trying to refute Taoism and Buddhism. But ironically, they had so these ideas had so infiltrated the culture that they ended up creating this wonderful synthesis of all three cultures. And they perceived the universe, it's the whole universe, as comprising qi, like all, which we can sort of think of as matter and or energy, all the stuff. But then they were saying, but it's organized according to what they called Li, which is the principles of organization of the stuff. Mm. And the word Li originally came from the patterns of jade. Like, um, and, and so it was this notion of how, how the patterns of the qi actually show up. So I was reading about this. And at the same time, I was reading Stuart Kaufman, who I'm sure you, um, mm. you know well, sure. wrote these great books like At Home in the Universe. And he's one of these greatest... Uh, most expansive thinkers in my mind in the modern era in si- looking at complexity science and systems thinking and asking these deep ontological questions. What does it mean for our understanding of the universe? And there's one passage where Stuart Kaufman says, um, we're entering new territory. Um, we're learning that there are principles of organization to the universe that we've never really discovered before. And we need to understand and this, the framework has not yet been developed for understanding this in a, in a better way. And right at that same time, I was reading the same phrase, principles of organization, of what these uh, neo-Confucian philosophers were describing a thousand years ago. And again, rather than that being just this kind of gee whiz, isn't that neat that these are um, the same sort of phrase, there's a much deeper um, confluence here. Because what it shows us, it's a little bit like the Rosetta Stone. In, in the, you know, this famous story of the R- R- Rosetta Stone, they found this, um, uh, this ancient, 
carving, which had the same passage in both uh, uh, like ancient Egyptian and Mesopotamian and uh, another language. And because of that, they were able to like look at the linkages between different languages and therefore decipher um, ancient Greek, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics that could never been done before. So similarly, this was like a Rosetta Stone and I could see there's ways in which now we can understand the spiritual implications of systems thinking through looking at how these Neo-Confucians worked through taking Buddhism, Taoism, and understanding it from that sense of principles of organization. And that, I think, was what first led me to understand what I argue strongly in the book, which is that systems thinking itself leads to a um, profoundly spiritual implication. And in fact, I believe the very word spirituality and the very concept of spirit can actually realistically be described in scientific terms using systems thinking, Mm -hmm. concepts like attractors and self-organization without reducing these ideas. This doesn't like get rid of the sanctity of these ideas, but actually expands them. Yeah. I, I think making that those connections for for those who need to see them um, is is just is powerful. Um, I just I really wanted to read uh, a quote that I, is is really relevant to what you just said. Um, comes uh, close to the end of the book, and you say we can define spirituality as seeking meaning in the coherent connections between things rather than in the things themselves. In this sense, spirituality and systems thinking are intrinsically aligned. Right. I just love that. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so back to, you also were talking about self-organization a, a moment ago and, you know, a, a, there's a lot of this stuff in, in the book and, you know, we, every day we're, we're exposed to stuff that really highlights for us, like all these breakdowns, the systemic breakdowns. Um, but you also talk about emergence and, and there's some, there's some cool stuff that, that comes out of emergence. And, um, you talk a little bit about, um, autopoiesis uh, as well, which is, you know, um, a lot of the listeners on, on this channel will be uh, familiar with, with, with the concept, but again, that it, it's not one that's, that's new. It's, it's not a, a, yeah, a 20th century system thinking original mm. thought there, is it? That's right. Um, in fact, this is really one of some of the more sort of profound areas that I think arise from this is just this understanding um, that life itself has this kind of, um, has this purpose, if you will. And um, it helps us to really realize how um, th- this kind of deep connectedness of everything around us. And the, the, the very notion of emergence is another of these ideas that some reductionist scientists hate. And, you know, mm-hmm. I've read articles where people um, will um, just uh, say that emergence is this kind of woo-woo idea and it's fuzzy and it doesn't belong in scientific Too accidental. discourse. And yeah. Exactly, all this kind yeah. of stuff. But actually emergence is just a very uh, rigorous uh, um, implication of systems thinking. And it's simply this notion that when complex systems interact together, um, with enough complexity, um, there will be a new level at which you can understand that system and a new coherence emerges. And what it basically says is that then the tools with which you try to understand a system at a certain level um, may not be the same tools or the same 
ways of understanding that you use to understand that system at the lower level. That doesn't re- that doesn't take away the validity of those lower levels, but it just it helps us to recognize how important it is how that um, th- systems do have these incredible layers of complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's a term, and I I went online to to try to figure out how to pronounce it, so I might I might not get it right. Is it Gaywu? Um, yeah, exactly. You actually pronounce it r- really well. I think some I think uh, technically it's probably should be pronounced Gowu. Okay, um, which is uh, that that e is kind of more like an r. Um, in but, got it. Um, uh, so not so not not too not 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 too bad. I didn't swatter it completely. <laughs> but um, but so for for me, it it kind of struck me as um, okay. What what can we? How do we go forward? It, it, you know, you described it as exploring the personal, ethical, and existential implications of our intrinsic interconnectedness. And you talk about Bateson, Gregory Bateson, doing kind of his own kind of version of that when he asked the, his you know famous question. Uh, you know, what is the pattern which connects? all living creatures is that the is that the work that we need to do yeah i i, I think it is and i'm i'm uh, thank you for raising that concept of go in our conversation it's rare that um we people get to talk about that and in a way in fact i think i say somewhere in the book that in a way this book itself is an is an ex is a version of go and we can understand this idea of go which is this core concept in neo-confucian thought once they recognized the universe consisting of chi and li. And they recognized it was the li, those patterns between things that ultimately, um, in many cases, were more important than the things themselves. They developed a rigorous study of the li, and they called that gowu, which essentially means the investigation of things. So the investigation of the patterns of how things interact. And what is interesting is some... Uh, sort of mainstream Western historians looked at this Neo-Confucian Go Wu and they compared it to the scientific revolution in Europe. They said, oh, well, this was sophisticated um, civilization developing their own investigation things, just like the scientific revolution. And while there's some elements of truth, there's also the real insight comes from the contrast between them. Because whereas the scientific revolution was all about understanding things as separate um, so human, so humans could control them, and believing that science was value free, Gowu was the exact opposite. It was a, it was a deeply systems based understanding. It recognized that humans were part of the systems that they were looking at. And in the great, um, this great quote from Chu Shi, one of the leaders of this uh, Neo Confucian um, thought process, he said, "If one wishes to understand the Tao." which is really like the whole system of systems of how all the Li were interconnected. He said, if, if we wish to understand the Tao, one must look inside one's own being. Mm-hmm. So it was this realization that we as humans are comprised of the same principles as the rest of life. And it was very much based on values. That real, once we realized that we are part of everything we're, we're trying to understand, there was a sense that we don't approach it as value-free. We don't approach it with control in mind, but we approach it with what they called reverence. Um, their, their, their approach to go woo is really a little bit more like our approach might be to a meditation practice or something. They, they said, before you start to investigate, you have to 
and take a pause and feel into the deep reverence for everything that you're about to try to make sense of. That's the kind of approach that I think if we can pursue that sort of uh, that engaged understanding of life and get rid of these separations we have between science and spirituality, you know, between mind and body and all these things, I think we have an opportunity mm. to develop a more integrated understanding of our reality. I, I, I love that. Thank you uh, so much. And, and you, you helped me ob- observe something that is just kind of an aside that probably adds no value to this podcast at, at all. But, um, you know, I, I was thinking, why are these systems thinkers and cyberneticians like they're, they're such amazing poets? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, like their, their language is just amazing. Yeah. You know, you quote, you quote Wiener, um, we are but whirlpools in a river of ever flowing water. We are yeah. not stuff that abides, but patterns that perpetuate themselves. Yeah. And it just it's, and and then you know, it makes me think. Well, a lot of these poets are actually systems thinkers. Uh, you know, when you uh, quote Wordsworth, and it makes me think of Rilke and others. That, that wow, they're just so systems in their orientation. Right. Just an aside. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, beautiful. Um, you know, one of the things I, I like that you 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 do is you know you don't hesitate to like just take a stab at some of these <laughs> ideas that we all just kind of like. Yeah, all right. Let I'll accept that. And one of them is like this idea of the selfish gene. We're right. just all just inherently selfish on our own. We're not systemically connected at all. We're just out there to just survive. And um, I, I like that you debunk that. And um, you know, you you do bring up the really kind of meaty uh, bit on cooperation, not competition. Right. And, you know, I I love that you quote um, Lynn Margulis. um, And, uh, you know, when when she says, uh, life did not take over the world by combat, but by Mm -hmm. networking. Right. And it just feels like that is just so much of, you know, what you're trying to to say here, you know, a a message and a takeaway that I think readers are going to notice. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. And if I can just kind of riff off that for a, a, a minute, that's really one of the, um, in a way, one of the key um, themes of the book is to look at how our modern dominant worldview is not just dangerous and driving us to potential collapse of civilization, but is plain wrong. And most of most people, and including me, until I discovered it in the last few years, we just kind of take this worldview as being right. Well, science yep. tells us, science tells us that um, that we're all driven by our genes, that the genes dictate everything, and that genes are selfish. And science tells us that actually humans are um, selfish and competitive, and that's uh, and that's just what we are. So we've got to work with that. And these are things that we just take for granted because it's been said. Uh, so many times by scientifically sounding people for so many decades. And this is where modern science shows us these things that we think are scientific are just plain wrong. And the most important, probably one of those, is the selfish gene myth. And Richard Dawkins has done such a great job of popularizing since the 1970s that people, yeah. most people just think, well, that has to be the case. Yeah. And what we now know is not just that actually evolution is not driven uh, by the gene as if the gene is this agent, but it's actually driven by this interactive dynamic between the cell and the gene and the cell determining what elements of the DNA it wants to express um, depending on its environment. But most importantly is this recognition, this whole selfish concept is just plain baloney. And the whole notion of competition driving evolution is wrong. 
actually, and this is not to argue that there's no such thing as competition in nature. Absolutely, there's competition all through every element of the natural world. But in addition to that, there is cooperation. And it's actually what evolutionary biologists have now seen as they look at, since life began billions of years ago on Earth, that the great steps in the increased complexity of life on Earth, such as the emergence of eukaryotic cells, like cells with a nucleus, or multicellular organisms, Mm -hmm. or animals, or uh, all the way to humans. Every one of these great steps came through an increase in cooperation, not competition. And that's why Lynn Margulis' statement is so accurate. Well, I love that. And there's there's, there's so much more... um... You know, I took away that, you know, what you talk about in terms of, of cooperation, promoting diversity and greater complexity. And, and then at some point you talk about how we're dumbing down the ecosystem. So with with these extinctions through, you know, competition and domination, we're dumbing down, we're reducing complexity in, in the system. Yeah, this is actually, this kind of Profound idea, and and again, I, I I can call it profound because it's not my idea. There's some great scientists out there who have developed it, and my what I view as my job is to try to communicate that in ways that are um, most accessible. But it's this recognition that when we look at the animate intelligence of nature, uh, that in fact, and um, through evolution, nature itself, we can call it Gaia or life on Earth, has actually increased that intelligence. So we can almost think of um, the Mm. relationship between all the different species in an ecosystem um, as the kind of like the thoughts of life itself. And we can look at uh, at this deep homology, this fact that we share half of our DNA with like a banana or a fruit fly or whatever, um, is really nature, as it learns things that work well, it then builds on them. Uh, just like, um, say, Deep Blue, the artificial intelligence yeah. uh, work has, has recognized that that's the way to build artificial intelligence, build on what you know better. So evolution has developed this rich fabric of profound animate intelligence. And as we destroy the ecosystems, um, oftentimes people will look at that as a negative from an uh, anthropocentric point of view, like, oh, there might be cures to cancer in the, some species that we get rid of. So that's a bad thing. But it's far more profound than that. We're actually destroying the very intelligence of nature that life has built over billions mm-hmm. of years. It's mm-hmm. not just a bad thing to do. It's really a crime against life itself that we need to recognize is happening. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, it's brilliant. And, you know, you, you, you quote Donald Hebb, I love this. I feel like just like writing this, like, I don't know, on a, on a bridge or something with, with, with spray paint, um, neurons that fire together, wire together. I just feel like mm. the implications of that are like powerful. Yeah. This is what's so fascinating. And this is where some, some scientists have actually made the statement. They've made the claim backed up by very rigorous science that evolution learns And they say, this is not just a metaphor. We're not just saying, oh, it's like evolution learns. They're saying it actually learns. And when we actually look at what learning is, that's where that Hebbian concept of neurons that uh, fire together, wire together is so important. That learning itself is a process of, is a self-organized process where different elements in a system um, discover that a certain successful outcome happens when they integrate together in a particular way. 
And so they use that as a building block to move forward. And, you know, the, as I, I say in the book, a great way to understand this is to remember when you first learned to ride a bicycle, right? All of us have been through that, right? We, we sort of get on the bike and we fall over yep. and then we wobble and then we have training wheels. And then at some point we kind of realize we can actually cycle without it. And, and it's because our embodied intelligence, the complex neuronal uh, muscular interactions in our body have learned to figure out how to be in harmony together to keep us in balance. And once we've done that, we don't have to relearn it. We've, we've learned that. And then we can sort of ride with one hand or no handed and talk when we're by, because we don't have to think about it anymore. So yeah. That's the way in which evolution learns, yeah. ecosystems yeah. learning how to do yeah. things right. So as a result of, of, of not doing that and, and as a species not encouraging that, in fact, we're eradicating precious complexity, as you, as you put it. Right. Um, you know, you suggest that we're possibly the greatest force for entropy Gaia has experienced in, in billions of years. And, you know, you, you chat a little bit, um, uh, you write a little bit about the adaptive cycle model of change. And, um, and in that, there's this sort of, you know, as you say, sort of terrifying kind of unraveling. It makes me think a little bit about, uh, you know, Joanna Macy, who, who you also, uh, whom you also quote in the book uh, quite a bit when, you know, in her, the great unraveling right. that, that is kind of, we're experiencing before perhaps we can enter into the great turning. Um, but yeah, just in terms of how you sort of think about the, the phase transition that maybe we're heading into. Yes, thank you. And it does uh, feel to me that it makes sense to think about our current global situation from a systems perspective. Um, and um, in the different models there are to look at how complex systems work, and to me and obviously to many other people, the adaptive cycle model of change feels like the most powerful. And this, for people who aren't aware of it, it's a model that got developed Actually, originally with um, forestry systems biologists trying to understand how forest fires work, but then they began to realize um, that there were certain principles of change that applied to living systems um, all in of every single kind. And this is now a model that um, has over decades, uh, thousands of scientists have uh, been part of developing. And what it basically says is that for any complex system, it works for a cell. It can work for evolutionary timeframes on Earth. And there are four um, phases to that cycle. There's like a growth phase. There's what they call a conservation phase, where, which can last for quite a long time, where the level of connections between things get tighter and tighter. And the system itself then begins to get less responsive to the environment, almost like brittle a little bit. And then as that happens, either in, endogenously or exogenously, a, a small change can cause the whole thing to like come apart. And you see that in forests, like when a forest fire arises, when too much undergrowth and bush has been collecting for too long. And that can be a terrifying time. In human systems, that can be like a stock market crash um, when everything feels like it's falling apart. And, and that's phase three. And that leads then to the fourth phase, which is this kind of um, reorientation phase of uh, when things reorganize. And during that phase, a small, um, a small input can cause a significant new um, reorientation of the whole system as it goes back into the new growth phase for the next cycle. 
So if we think in human terms again, you can imagine, say, in the 1920s and 30s, after the stock market crash and after, um, say, uh, Germany lost the First World War, somebody like Adolf Hitler um, could get this incredible power that would never have happened in a more stable environment. But it's mm. because the collapse happened that uh, that, that kind of um, situation could occur. Right. So then, of course, you look at that and say, well, what phase are we in right now? And most people feel that we're moving towards the end of the conservation phase in our global system. We seem to be moving towards some kind of collapse of something. The question is, what is going to collapse first? Is it going to be our whole um, economic uh, global material system, which would be this devastating thing? Or could it be that our worldview, this reductionist worldview, might begin to unravel before the system itself unravels? And could we use a different mm -hmm. kind of worldview, this integrative, connected worldview, to look at reforming our civilization from within? So rather than dealing with collapse, we can also, we can instead kind of reorient, create that new form of civilization from the core, from the unraveling of the current yeah. civilization. Right. Um, and I, I think that takes us into, uh, you know, really how I want to begin to close, unfortunately, because we, we don't have a lot of time left. But the second last chapter of the book is called How Should I Live? Mm. And so this is where, you know, for me, it was sort of like, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I like how um, you do. I just want to find this quote. How can we open our hearts to recognize this without having them broken? <sighs> yeah. And, you know, you, you, you talk about um, eudaimonia, you know, which is really all about ha happiness and finding, finding meaning. And, uh, and, it, and we're, we're, but we're doing that in, uh, in a, an environment where it, it's not easy to, to do that. Um, we, you know, you talk about uh, the weaponization of dukkha. Am I saying that right? Am yes. I saying dukkha? Yes. So, uh -huh. so I mean, talk a little bit about that. I mean, the, the challenge is, yeah, uh, we, we, Lori Santos, who um, hosts a podcast called The Happiness Lab, um, recently, uh, I heard her say, you know, we, we need we need the people who have the energy uh, uh, to have the bandwidth to fix the, fix the structures and, and they have have to be happy. Yes. I mean, that's a word. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, again, to sort of do the work and in this environment where it, there's almost forces against being that way, this, this concept that, that, that you talk about with this weaponizing of, of yeah, Duca. yeah, sure. Yeah. <clears throat> so there are a few big concepts. I'll see if I can um, sort of put them together uh, in a, a simple Thanks, right. like a complicated a, question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, um, so, you know, you were talking about dukkha. There's this very profound Buddhist notion of dukkha, which kind of translates a little bit like suffering, but it's mm -hmm. more the sense of unease, a sense of always wanting something other than where you're at right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. And one of the uh, things I explore is how modern consumerism, uh, capitalism and, and the uh, corporate 
the whole corporate system has weaponized that sense of dukkha. It's designed on making people always want more through advertising, through showing them uh, the, the, the elite lifestyles that they could have if they worked harder or if they spent more money or the status that they could get if they bought this new, the next iPhone or whatever. And by doing that, it, it weaponizes that actual sense of dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction that people have. And that leads to this notion that we can only be happy if we get more material um, stuff or more status over others. So happiness becomes this zero-sum game. Um, and it also becomes this amount of uh, arising from consumption, from consuming the, uh, the rest of the earth. But um, if we look instead at this potential for well-being, sustainable well-being, um, Aristotle's term is eudaimonia, a sense of really fulfilling your purpose in life, then we can realize that that kind of flourishing actually is not a zero-sum game. And there's this concept um, that I explore in the book that I call fractal flourishing. Mm-hmm. This recognition that once we see that we live embedded in complex systems, in a holarchy, with systems within us, and we're part of larger systems, and we look at how ecosystems work, which is also a holarchy, we realize that actually the healthiest system exists only when all the different layers in which it's embedded are also healthy. Mm-hmm. This notion that... Um, and the different fractal layers of our circumstance should all be healthy. So rather than Mm -hmm. a notion that my success happens at the expense of others around me in this zero-sum game, or I need to consume resources to make myself as happy as possible, we get to realize that humans, that I as an individual can be happiest in a happy, in a basically a healthy community as part of a human species that is um, has the conditions for flourishing and that mm-hmm. can only happen as part of a regenerated earth which is also flourishing so it shifts the whole model rather than the zero-sum game to look at how can we make the earth system itself so full of uh, richness and abundance that humans can be part of that flourishing rather than destroying it and and you and taking that uh, it's much more than a metaphor, but using that metaphor to think about how we how we live, and you um, remind us of the term Ubuntu, um, right. African term. I, I am because you are. You are because I am. Also reminds mm-hmm. me of, of of something you heard Sherry Mitchell in a podcast talk about, which is Mama Bizu and Ala Bizu. And I I can only have enough and be well if my community has enough and right. and and is well. It, it's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I love that, and and you also talk about in this um, kind of last part of the book around just how um, this this kind of normalization, this baseline movement that 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 happens, and and you quote you know Joni Mitchell's song Pave, "Paving Paradise," <laughs> put up a parking lot. We don't know what we've got until it's gone, but your argument there is that we might not know that it's gone because it's normal like that's right yeah yeah well that's this um concept that the biologist dennis paulie who's uh, studied marine fisheries came up with a few decades ago it's called shifting baseline syndrome Uh, and he noticed that people who were fishing in in cape cod uh that the size of the cod they were uh, the the size of the fish they were catching was actually like something like five percent of a few generations earlier and yet they didn't seem to feel there was anything wrong because each, each new generation just looked at the baseline they had for um, what was the norm. 
Similarly, right now, we go out to a walk in nature and we go, oh, isn't nature so beautiful? We don't realize that 90 plus percent of the richness and abundance of nature has been destroyed by human activity over the last, mostly the last couple of generations and also the last few hundred years. And that is something that we need to become more aware of, how much we have destroyed what has already been there in life. And that we can work, that doesn't mean we should give up on that. It means we can work to regenerate that abundance. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that uh, uh, the advice that you provide, well, you know, you don't ever outright offer advice. You don't say, go do this. Here are the five tips here that, you, you know, so I, I don't want to Im- imply right. there are things yeah. I took away. I should mm-hmm. just speak from a, from a personal perspective. And, um, for me, it's, it's really, um, looking at, at these things systemically, spiritually sort of understanding those, those, the connections b- between those things. Um, also just follow your heartbreak that that yeah. concept uh, i mean we can't we can't ignore the the realities around us we all, we need to sort of experience the 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 pain i think that's part of the oneness and the non-separation that that uh you know the um the the, the wisdom that, that we get from the very early thinkers um and so I, I I don't know I just I I felt like there is just a, a lot of of wisdom particularly around where we're going how we need to be and and how we um, need to sort of operate within this complexity and so I want to just close um, I want to give you the opportunity to maybe share a couple of final words the question that I didn't ask perhaps uh, mm. like. You know, we've. I know that every you you talk about this book a, a lot. Probably every conversation is a little little bit different. Yeah. Um, what else would you like to say in yeah, our yeah, last thanks. couple of well, minutes? Um, really, just what you were just exploring there is, I think, a great way to close the, this conversation. Is this question of sort of how should I live? And to your point, it's not like I'm saying trying to hit people over the head saying you should do this. But one thing that I realized, actually, as as I was writing the book and I talk about it in the book, is how values themselves are a function of our identity. Like if we say our identity, if we see ourselves just as separate individuals, our values will be individualistic oriented. But once our identity expands to include all of humanity and all of life, then our values themselves expand in the same way. And I think uh, really, I found this quote from Albert Schweitzer, the great humanitarian in the 20th century, to be so resonant for me, where he, he states, I am life that wills to live in the midst of life that wills to live. And as a result, he says, I cannot but have reverence for all life. Mm. And once we realize that, we're driven to actually act in ways, not because we think we should, because we, it comes from within us. Once we see the destruction our civilization is doing to life, it's not out there. It's happening to me as part of life. And so we're driven to become part of being agents for life, mm. um, which I think is not too late for us to work together uh, as an interrelated community to turn things around right now. Oh, beautiful. Thank you for those final words. I, I don't want to uh, um, add anything else because I want everyone to just sort of simmer, uh, you know, with, with, with those words. I've so enjoyed our conversation. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. Listeners, 
please share this podcast. Yeah, as, as Jeremy said, we want this to be mainstream. We want everybody to be, be thinking this way. And um, of course, buy the book, read the book, tell your friends about it, take it to a book club, start a book club. If you don't have a book club, just engage with, with, with this material. Um, this has been really great. Thank you so much. And thank you, Kevin. Just great talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to my conversation with Jeremy Lent about his new book, The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. This is Kevin Lindsay. Thanks for listening to this episode of Systems and Cybernetics on the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.